Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. I have the distinct honor, and I, I definitely consider it a great honor to be able to stand before you today. It's a privilege that I don't take for granted. And to have the opportunity to share with you uh, some thoughts from the Word of God. As has been mentioned already during the service, this, this particular section in the traditional um, readings that happen within the Jewish world, most of the Jewish world, there are several different reading plans. But the readings, the yearly reading plan, brings us to, again, to Sefer Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. And the reading this week covered Numbers chapter 16 through 18. And it's quite a portion. How many had a chance to read that this week? Good. Some of us did. But if you didn't, we'll try to refresh your memory. We can't go through everything that we find there. But I want to suggest to you today that we should be tapping into these readings if we can, or some kind of a reading plan. Why? Because it's very important for us to be consistent in the Word of God. And there are three things we must be consistent in if we want to grow. One is fellowship. The other is prayer. And the third is the Word of God. And we will consistently do these things, faithfully do that. You know, it has nothing to do with how we feel, because sometimes we don't feel like doing anything. Or sometimes we feel like do, doing everything all at once. But if we'll consistently give ourselves to prayer, to fellowship in the Word of God, feelings aside, just, just how, do, how do we say, just do it. If we'll, if we'll do that, something will happen deep inside of us because the Word of God will become planted within us. And when God's Word is implanted within us, something happens miraculous. God grants the increase. Now, this passage... Is called Korach. In English, we say Korach. I actually think Korach is better. We say that in Hebrew. And it's been, uh, it's been said that this passage, let me quote one particular commentary on this. In describing this section of the book of Numbers, chapter 16 through 18, quote, a fascinating confluence of divine calling, human personality, ongoing circumstances, God's perspective, and his intervention. And ditto to all that, that's exactly what happens in this passage. You see all those things. And as we study Korach, in fact, as we study any area of the Torah or the Word of God, particularly the Torah, as we study it, as we look into it, we also need to keep in mind what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. It actually says this twice in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says that as we read these portions, quote, these things were written for our admonition. 
some translations say our instructions, something we're supposed to learn from, was written for our admonition and then in following something that Shelby just said, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, we don't know exactly when that will be, but I promise you this, and I don't make promises, but here's one. (laughs) I promise you that each day we are getting closer to that. Each breath we take, each minute that passes, we are getting closer to the culmination of all things. And when it's all said and done, there he's going to be, Yeshua the Messiah, piercing through the heavenlies and setting up his throne, not in Hollywood, not in Ottawa, not in Rio de Janeiro, not in Calcutta, but he's going to be setting up his throne where? Bury Jerusalem in Jerusalem. Blessed be his name. So these things were written for our admonition, our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages has come. That word admonition there, when we get to the Greek sense of that word, there's two other words that connect to the idea of admonition or instruction. These words are caution, to caution us and also to warn us. And sometimes a good caution is a good thing. We can be cautioned about something. Uh, say you're, you're, you're on your bike what, traveling in, in the path, uh, on the lakeside path, a uh, trail with your bike, and then someone says, be careful, the bridge is out over there. How many of you like that kind of a caution or a warning? Well, the Word of God sometimes gives us exactly that, some cautions and warning, but it is our task, I believe, and I think you would agree with this. It is our task to hear what the Ruach, what the Spirit is saying to us through the Word of God, and not just hear what it says, but also to be an effective or an effectual doer of what the Word says. It's one thing to hear that the bridge is out, and then you just keep going in your bike and go right off. It's another thing to hear that the bridge is out and to take heed and to respond to that warning or caution. Now, this man, Korach, is mentioned only once directly in the Brit Hadashah in the New Covenant. It's mentioned only once, and that's found in a book that some people just skim over. It's only even one page in most Bibles. That's the book of Yehuda or Jude. There he's mentioned in what is, I think, a significant reference. And for context, Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter. Jude chapter 1 verse 8 says this. It it says, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. In other words, Jude here, Yehuda is pointing out that those to whom he refers there when he says they defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries, the individuals he's speaking of, he's pointing out that those to whom he refers, they are fleshly, they are rebellious, and they are maligners of authority. Or as it says, how it says in Jude, it says he, they speak evil of dignitaries. What's curious about this and examining this and wondering what that means to speak evil of dignitaries, something popped out as I was examining this and looking at kind of the Greek connotation here. The word for dignitaries that's used here is actually a word that points to good dignitaries. 
There's no, there are no adjectives applied to them. These are dignitaries. The actual Greek word is as a, as a good connotation, not an evil connotation. It's, it's a good connotation. So the dignitaries has a positive connotation. So that makes someone who maligns these dignitaries even more off track in maligning them. It's not like the dictators he speaks of, Jude speaks of, are evil people doing evil things. No, the connotation is they're actually good leaders. They're actually good dignitaries, good representatives. So then we read a little further on after reading Jude 1 verse 8. We read Jude verse 11. It, that, this is where we contact or come in touch with Korach, who is the one whose Torah portion we are reading, this Torah portion this week is named after him. Here's what it says, and what a way to start verse 11. <laughs> it says, woe to them. Now this woe is not the woe when you're on a horse and you want to stop from going over that bridge. This woe is, is oi. Oily, as, as uh, Isaiah said. He said, oily. Woe unto me, because I am a man of unclean lips. This is that kind of a woe. This is an oi woe. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Woe to them. And so Korah here is listed with who? He's connected with Balaam and Cain, at least in the mind of the writer of the book of Yehudah, Jude. And I don't, I don't know how your thought process is, but when a person, he's right, when you're writing something and you have a thought process you're writing down, here his thought process connects Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And I would suggest to you these three are not the, these are not the ones you want to be connected with. You don't want your name to be the fourth name here and following these kind of ways that were exhibited by Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And the verbs that are used here says they have gone, they have run. It implies they perished. They perished. It points out through these verbs, these very distinct and and, uh, forceful verbs, it points out that their ways eventually cost them. They suffered a a dubious fate, a very bad fate. And I want us to realize here this morning, it's not as if as we read about Cain, Balaam, and Korach, that those type of people lived way back then in Torah days, and now they don't exist anymore. I'm suggesting to you and ask you to consider that these same type of people exist now. And... They existed in the first century. And these type of people, the Cain type, the Balaam type, the Korok type, these type of people were individuals that someone like Rob Shaul, Paul the Apostle, had contact with. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, begin with verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In verse 19 of Romans chapter 1, 
Rav Shaul with his Pharisee background, says, because what may be known of God is manifested them, for God has shown it to them. And in each case, with Cain, with Balaam, and Korach, each of these individuals, we can state a strong case that they had a chance in their life to go a different direction, but they didn't. They just didn't do it. Is that still happening now in the 21st century? Where individuals have a chance to repent and turn their, their life in another direction and, and aren't doing it. So we basically have the same type of premise taking place now in the 21st century. And as we're reading the book of Romans, chapter 1, it's one of the first thoughts we encounter in the first chapter of Romans. Is this one, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, Paul, who was, I like Paul. How many like Rob Scholl? <laughs> I like Paul. <laughs> I wonder what he would think if he came dancing down here and did the horror with us or something. I don't know. He'd probably correct our Hebrew, correct our theology, correct our dance moves. What else would he do? <laughs> but he was a maker of lists. He made lists, and he doesn't just do it like we do it. Point one, point two, point three, point four, point five. He was a maker of lists. It's a curious study. If you really have a little extra oomph in your study, you can go through his writings and find these lists and see what did he list and what were the lists about. It's interesting that Shelby mentioned a list today during the announcements of having to write things down and being reminded. And his wife uh, tells him and has mercy on him, said, put a check mark by each one. Now, I could understand that if he came home without one of those items, he would want to go back and get that item. <laughs> but Paul was a maker of lists, even as he was a tent maker, as it said, and there's discussion as to what that means. But he was making lists. And there's a really incredible list a little further on in Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 28. It says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they didn't want God in their knowledge. They didn't want to retain God in their thinking and their processes of life. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, this next verse, this next statement, really, can I say this word? It's kind of scary. And the same thing that happened that Robson was pointing out in the first century, and I would argue all the way back to the time of Cain, the first human, first son, Cain and Abel, first sons. Here's what it says. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to what? A debased mind. And what happens up here in your mind? Thinking. Thought process. And how does thought process connect with us? Well, our thought process informs a lot of what we say and do. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Is that still happening in society or is that all gone now? It's still happening now. They're doing things that are not fitting. And here's this list, and it is a knockdown, drag out list. One of many that Paul uses. Here's the list God gave them over to debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Verse 29 of Romans chapter 1 being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. 
full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy. Have you had enough yet? Let me continue. Untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of what? Of death, mavet, not only do not only do the same, they do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So they do these things, and then they approve of others who are doing these things. That's a, how, how many think that's quite a list there? That's a long list describing many different types of attitudes and actions. And I'll suggest to you if we carefully, carefully study the evil deeds that were just listed there in Romans 1 by Rav Shaul, there can be a strong case made that when you put together Cain, Balaam, and Korach, and look at what we know about them from Scripture, when you put them together, you can basically see almost every one of these things in operation either in one, two, or three of them. Every one of these things in operation in their lives. And it goes without saying here this morning that such evil ways, like we encounter in Romans 1 that I just read, such evil ways and deeds should not be found in our lives. And how many agree with that statement? These things need to be jettisoned from our lives. They need to be gone. So here's how this connects with Korach, this week's parashah. It begins in Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. It says, now Korach, the son of Yitzhar, the son of Kohat, the son of Levi, with Datan and Aviram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pelet, sons of Reuben, took men. Curious way to say it. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel. And the sum, we're given a total, some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, Anshe Shem, it says in Hebrew, men of renown, people who have a name. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and they said to them, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, verse, between verse 3 and verse 4 is an interesting point, historical point. Think about how you would react if someone came to you and said such things to you. Well, we don't need to think so much about how Moshe reacts because it's mentioned in verse 4, the beginning part of verse 4. What does Moshe do? It says, so when Moses heard it, at this point, it's a crux point. He can go different directions. And Moses heard it, and he lashed out. He punched them in the jaw. Moses heard it, he cussed them back. Moses heard it, and he went, he went about and got a stick and started beating him. No, absolutely not. Are there people that would have reacted like that? 100% can, yes. 
So when Moses heard it, guess what he did? It's not the first time we read this. He fell on his face. Does that mean he tripped over something? No. It means he got before the Lord. He humbled himself face down before the Lord. Let me suggest this to you. If you've never really done that privately or secretly before the Lord and given yourself to him, I strongly suggest that you make that type of interaction with the Lord part of your interaction with him. It's not to be seen by eyes other than the heavenly eyes. And you humble yourself before the Lord, face to the ground, and you say, Here I am, Lord. Use me. That's what Moses did. And as I've already mentioned, as you're probably aware, this is not the first time it says Moses heard it and he fell on his face. When trouble came to him, to Moshe, several times he just got on his face before the Lord when he could have lashed out. After all, he had a lot of people he could have got to help him lash out, but he doesn't do it. Now, the Jewish sages is also called Chazal, the Jewish sages. They point out three significant things concerning the Bible character Korach. And I think they're correct in these things. Not everything the sages say are in line with Scripture, but in this case, I think they hit it. In looking at the text of what Korach is and what he's about and what he does and what he says, they came up with three conclusions about him, and I want to share them with you. First one, the Chazal, the the, uh, Hachamim, the uh, sages, they said that Korach was a shrewd man. They concluded reading all about him that he was a shrewd man who, sad to say, was given over to jealousy and envy. He's a shrewd man, but he was given over to jealousy and envy. It's pretty easy to prove that from the text uh, this week's Torah portion. Just looking at what he says, what those around him do, you realize there's a, a strong tinge of jealousy and envy there. Now, the New Covenant book of Yaakov, James, emphasizes the difference between worldly or fleshly wisdom and spiritual wisdom. You know there's a difference there. Sometimes they connect, but worldly wisdom and spiritual wisdom. And in Yaakov, James chapter 3, beginning with verse 16, it says, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And when it says every evil thing are there, just think back of the list of Rav Shaul in Romans 1. Every evil thing, well, all that's listed in Romans 1, that's part of that every evil thing list. Again, James 3, 16 and 17, for where evil and self-existing exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And then it continues, verse 17, but the wisdom, the chokhmah that is from above is first what? Pure. It's not unholy wisdom. It's not adulterated wisdom. It's pure. It's godly wisdom. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then what? Peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. It doesn't say it always yields, but it's willing to yield. It's reasonable, you might say. It's what? Full of mercy. It's full of mercy and what else? Good fruits. The wisdom from above, there's good fruit connected to wisdom from above. 
And I'll tell you, worldly wisdom, earthly wisdom, fleshly wisdom can bring forth some terrible fruit. You think I'm kidding about that? Remember what it says in the Torah with Sarah and Hagar. (laughs) That was some fleshly wisdom there. Although God seemed to be sovereign over all of it and knew what he was doing. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. So the Hachamim, the Chazal, the sages, the Jewish sages said that Korach was a shrewd man, but he was given over to jealousy and envy. The second thing they said, that Korach, he bore a grudge. Korach bore a grudge against Moses and Aaron because Korach thought he had been overlooked and not given the spiritual leadership position he think he deserved or had earned. It's not like Korach didn't have a task in the community. He did. He was from the tribe of Levi. He was a Levite. And the Levites were assigned specific tasks. If you read carefully the details of the Torah, individual families, communities with, among the Levites had specific tasks that they were to do that were actually very important for the community. If they didn't do their task, as menial as, menial as it might have seemed to them, it would have impacted all the community, Kol Israel, all of Israel. And Korach somehow, we don't know how, got this idea that he'd been overlooked, that, uh, you know, his assigned task that he had and he and his, his family had just, just wasn't really what he was supposed to be doing because he was uh, beyond that or better than that. And I think the, the rabbis, again, have, have a real connection here. Now, God had already given clear directives about grudges. Just think of that word, grudges. Isn't that a great word for that? <laughs> Grudges. It sounds. It sounds like. There's an expression. It sounds like. It grudges. Sounds like. Especially when I say it like that. But clear directives about bearing a grudge had been given previously in Sefer Vayikra in the book of Leviticus. But the memo, the heavenly memo, didn't seem to find Korach's desk when it came to grudges. Because we read in a very well-known passage in Sefer Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18, it says, you shall not take vengeance, and here's the next statement, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. Now, who can give the Lord counsel? But this we know. Bearing a grudge can have a very, very uh, dismal impact upon an individual if they continually bear a grudge. It weighs them down, can actually ruin their own enterprise. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge, no grudges, against the children of your people. And I think when the Torah says not to bear grudges against those in the community, you know what? I think the word of God means what it says. So friends here today, let me say this as an aside. If you're bearing a grudge against someone, just think about what that word grudge sounds like. You need that out of you. It needs to go. You got to let it go. Give it over to the Lord. Ask for his help. And instead of bearing a grudge, become a vessel of his peace. Become a vessel of his reconciliation. Become a vessel of his Yeshua, his salvation and deliverance.
Now, if there was anyone who might be justified in bearing a grudge and taking vengeance, it was Yeshua. If there was anyone. He was falsely accused. He was unrighteously beaten and tortured. He was mocked. He was spit upon. And really, that's only the small part of it. And many of you know the narrative, the history of what happened with Yeshua. It's been played up in movies, but I don't think it really covers the half of it. Not to mention the, just the physical thing, but the inner aspect of that. And yet, he, all these things happened to him, falsely accused, unrighteously beaten, tortured, mocked and spit upon. All these things happened to him. Yet he was sinless. He was totally undeserving of this type of treatment. Totally. He was the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, the blameless Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And yet all these things and more happened to him. Why? Friends here today, he went through all that for you. He went through that for you. There is no other way to be saved but through accepting Yeshua as the Messiah because he is our kapara, he's our atonement. And when we receive him and allow, in a sense, the blood of Yeshua to cleanse us, his blood that avails for us, when we receive him, and at times in our society, he's mocked, He's the bane of jokes by comedians at our house. We don't watch any of that stuff. It's, it's trafe. It's unclean. So much of what's out there on the, what do they call it, the boob tube or something like that? So much that's out there. Be careful, friends. Be careful. And not just in the television, but that little device that some of you have in your hands right now. That little device. That telephone. Be careful. Now, Yeshua endured all the things that I mentioned and much more, yet there is not a hint, and I've looked carefully, and probably some of you have as well, there is not a hint of him seeking vengeance at that time. There's not a hint of him bearing a grudge against those who despise him and treated him wickedly. Not a, not a hint. In fact, as we read this and talk about his pain and his inner sufferings, these started well before the tree, the cross, the execution stake. For example, just a, a smidgen of what happened, Matthew 26, verse 47. And while Yeshua was still speaking, the setting is uh, Gethsemane. While Yeshua was still speaking, think about this, please, friends. Behold, Judas. Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs came from the, the chief priests and elders of the people. Think about that. Here's this one whom you broke bread with. Here's this one whom you entrusted to take care of the, the pushkatan, as we might say, or the, the, the treasury. Here's this one who listened to your teaching, who sat with you, who walked with you, who saw what you did. And he's the one, in a sense, leading the pack. It says in verse 48, how that must have hurt, think about it, the pain of that, the inner pain. Now his betrayer had given them a sign 
There's so many ways that Judas could have tipped them off. Well, this is the one you're after. Of course, it's dark there somewhat. They have lapidim. They have torches there. But there's not street lights like we have now. It's a dark. And they say, well, here's, here's, the, here's the sign he gives to those who are coming to arrest Yeshua. He tells them, Judas tells them, whoever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Whoever I kiss. There are so many different ways he could have tipped, tipped it off. He could have said, whoever I shake hands with. Whoever I hand this piece of paper. Whoever I give this apple. Who, I mean, think of all the possibilities. But he says, whoever I kiss. A neshika, a kiss. Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Sees him. That's what Judas says. Can I use this Hebrew word here today? Ouch. How, how painful is that to be betrayed like that in what was a very intimate moment. They just had had the, what we now call the Last Supper. They just eaten together. Judas had been at the table for a good part of that. And there he goes. Verse 49, Matthew 26. Immediately Judas, Judas went up to Yeshua. So he doesn't even hesitate he goes straight to him. Immediately, Judas went up to Yeshua and said, Greetings, Rabbi. Shalom, Rabbi. And then the next one, and kissed him. Ouch. How painful. My friends here today, Yeshua went through all that inner pain for you. So if you're suffering inside yourself with things, he's provided atonement for inner healing. He was wounded, which is outward for our transgressions, and he was bruised, which is inward for us. So if you're struggling with something deep inside, if you're in pain, if you have a bruise, Yeshua has provided atonement for you, deliverance, healing. But Yeshua said to him, and Yeshua could have said many things to Judas at this point, he could have used some expletives. He could have done all things, which is unimaginable. He could have done all kinds of things. He could have done like Moses could have done with Korach and, and clipped him one in the jaw. But Yeshua said to him, friend, why have you come? Did Yeshua know why he had come? Yes. Oftentimes I thought that he did that to Judas to make Judas think one last time. What are you doing? Judas, my friend, what are you doing? Why have you come here? And even there, there was a chance for Judas to pull the plug on the whole thing. But he doesn't. Friend, why have you come? Then they came and they laid hands on Yeshua. And that wasn't for a prayer meeting. They seized him. Remember, he is the one who sees him. They seized him. They laid hands on Yeshua and took him. And all that he goes through was for you. He was the lamb without sin. He was the one with no blemish. He's the one who, who, who was pure and holy and righteous in all his ways. They, took, they came and laid hands on Yeshua and took him. And there's a curious little twist to this narrative in Matthew chapter 26, verse 51. And it says, and suddenly, one of those who were with Yeshua, and guess who that was? We learn in John chapter 18, verse 10, that it was Kepha, 
Peter. And suddenly one of those who were with Yeshua stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Luke 22, verse 51, tells us, you know what Yeshua did? He would say, good, you deserve to have your ear cut off. Remember this the rest of your life when you, people look at you and they remember this, what you did. No, our Messiah, blessed be his holy name, didn't do that at all. Luke 22, verse 51, states that Yeshua healed the air. Wow. So even there, at that time of greatest betrayal, Yeshua healed someone that was coming to seize him. Blessed be Yeshua's name. And then Yeshua said, verse 52, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then verse 53, if you wonder, could Yeshua have done anything at this circumstance? Verse 53 makes it very clear. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of malachim? Can you say malachim? 12 legions of malachim. Yeshua says, don't you think I could just call these? You know what? He doesn't. Because it was the plan and purpose of Hashem, of the Lord, that the suffering servant Yeshua would lay down his life for each one of us. And that includes you today, friend, as an atonement, as kapara for us. And then soon afterwards, we know the narrative of what happened with Yeshua. Soon afterwards, while Yeshua was suffering on the tree, on the cross, he was being mocked and he was being pierced. And they were doing all kinds. They gave him vinegar to try to dope him up, so to say. During that time, he makes a remarkable statement, one that has resonated through the eons of time to this very day here in Oklahoma City and serves as an example for us today. After all they did to him, he says in Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Are you thankful for a Savior who is willing to forgive and forgive you? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we realize how blameless Yeshua's teachings are. When we read in, also in Matatiao, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Don't be evil like they are. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. It's most important that we do not become like those who are like that. We are a people redeemed of the Lord, and we know that this earth is not our final resting place. And we want to gather all that we can to come to our Messiah and know his unfailing love. There's a memorable scene. How many of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof, by the way? <laughs> Most of us. I recommend it. It's funny. <laughs> but there's a memorable scene that takes place, a memorable scene that takes place in the, in the shtetl, in the uh, Jewish village. 
where a Jewish villager, after all this stuff is happening from, from the, the, the locals that are attacking them, etc., and given the Jewish community there, real sorus, real troubles. There's a memorable scene where a Jewish villager cries out, to all that lived at that time in the shtetl, in that Jewish village, he cries out. And he says that they should exact revenge against the czar and against the Russians. And when you think about it, they deserved it. There were pogroms taking place. There were ransacking of Jewish villages and much worse. Young Jewish boys were taken into the Russian military, and one of the first things they did, test, testifiers have told us, was they made sure that that young soldier ate pork. And get rid of this Jewish stuff and ate pork. So that villager cries out as they're discussing what the, the Russians and the czars had done, or whoever the, the locals were there, it seemed to be Russians. And so he, he reasoned that it was okay to exact revenge against the Tsar and against the Russians because he says, and sounds Tevia-like, he says, well, the good book says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And that's his rationale. And he projects that out for everyone to hear. This is, we need to exact revenge, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And one of the classic statements of Tevia the milkman <laughs> comes forward in that very moment. Tevye thinks, he's pensive about it, he thinks about it, and he says, Tov meod, very good. This is how he responds. Very good. That way, the whole world will be blind and toothless, is what he says. <laughs> is that really what we're supposed to be doing, making the whole world blind and toothless? Are we supposed to be vessels to get to the heart and apprehend the heart, vessels of Hashem, of the Ruach? Back to Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge. Friends, don't think you're justified with these things. You're not. Nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. Now, we know the rest of this very well because it's said here every Shabbat. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice how it ends. I am the Lord. It's enough that it's God that tells us, I am the Lord. So in conclusion here today, we're taught, and I think correctly, that Korach was a shrewd man Point one, who, sad to say, he was given over to jealousy and envy. We're also told that Korog bore a grudge. He bore a grudge against Moses and Aaron. He bore a grudge because he felt like he was overlooked for a major spiritual position. That maybe he was more deserving. Why was he overlooked? And he bore a grudge. And thirdly, Korog, and this is key, Korog refused to repent. He refused to repent. If you read the narrative of Korach, and we will go more in depth today at Shabbaton, Lord willing, but you read the narrative of Korach as it's presented in the Torah and Sefer Bat Midbar in the book of Numbers, you realize there are certain points along the way where Korach could have pulled the plug on the whole thing. And he could have said, no, we're, this is, wait, I, I just realized this is wrong what we're doing. He doesn't do it to the very end, he and his cohorts. 
refuse to do it. They become even more, how would you say, obstinate in their opinions and in, in their course of action. And this refusal of Korach to repent was also a trait that we find of those who were following him. Here's what happens, Numbers chapter 16, verse 19. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them. The, them would be Aaron and Moses, really, and the Lord, at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the kavod Adonai, the glory of the Lord, appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moshe and Aharon, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. By the way, if you get into acting and entangled with those who are rebellious, those who are unrepentant, etc., be careful. Be careful. Don't think you got a special, uh, you know, exoneration card here. God said first thing, what's he say to them? He has to say this to Moses and Aaron, to those who are listening. He says, separate yourselves from among this congregation. And what a harrowing statement the next one is, that I may consume them when? In a moment. Then they... Moses and Aaron, what did they do? They did this many times. They fell on their faces and said, O oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation. Right there, their leadership was proven. Their concern was for the whole community, not for themselves. Shall one man sin and you be angry with all this kehilah, with all the community, the congregation? And so the Lord spoke to Moshe saying, speak to the congregation saying, tell them, get away from the tents of Korach, Dathan, and Abarm. Do you notice something here? The Lord knew their names. Do you think the Lord knows the names of the righteous? Yes. Do you think the Lord knows the names of the rebellious and the unrepentant and those who refuse to obey him, those who refuse to follow him, those who continually have recalcitrant hearts and they don't want to follow the Lord? Yes, the answer is yes, he knows. Get away from the tents of Korok, Dathan, and Abiram. And there's something else it says when he mentions their name. He knew where they lived, the tents of Dathan. Korach, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses went, verse 25, and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And Moses spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Moses obeyed what he was told to do. A servant of God obeys what that servant's told to do by the Lord. Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. And then this next statement. And Moses really got the principle of holiness. He says, touch nothing of theirs. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. Sometimes we get a little too close. We become a little bit too comfortable and a little bit more uh, appropriate things that are sinful, and we take them into our life and we think it's okay. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. 
Verse 27, so they got away from around the tents of Korah. There, to their credit, they obeyed. They got it. They heard what was being said to them. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Datan, and Aviram. And Datan and Aviram, this is an incredible statement here. So Dathan and Abiram came out, and what do they do? It's so contrasting with what Moses and Aaron did. Dathan and Abiram, they come out, and what do they do? They stand what did Moses and Aaron do? They went on their face. They stand, the ideas are they defiantly stand. They don't humble themselves. And they stood at the door of their tents, and guess who else was with them? With their wives, their sons, and their little children. So there wasn't even in the tent someone that was saying, no, don't do this. No, don't do that. And sometimes we think, well, why does God say remove all those Joshua, get rid of all those because there's nothing happening in the tent that's pleasing to God. I hope what's happening in our tents, in our homes, are pleasing to God. Then this took place, number 16, verse 31. Now it came to pass, wow, as Moses finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them. Wow. Notice the phraseology here, the way this is stated in verse 32. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. Notice how that's stated. And swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korach with all their goods. So they and all those who went there went with them, went down alive into the pit. So the earth opened its mouth, but guess what else it says? It's in the next phrase. The earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. They can no longer be seen, heard, considered in the flesh. Friends, as I started out here today, remember what 1 Corinthians says says these things were written for our instruction. The spiritual airwaves that we have in our day, they must begin to resonate more and more with the truths that are found in Romans chapter 2. Let me read a couple of verses to you. Beginning with verse 2. We know that the judgment of God is according to truth Against those who practice such things, what are the such things that it says? That long list that we read from Romans 1. That knockdown, drag out list of all the evil things. We know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Verse 3, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things, and you are doing the very same thing, that you will escape the judgment of God? To use my term, do you think you have a get-out-of-jail-free card? That you can do these things and God's just going to wink at it? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God does what? Leads you to repentance. Will you say that last word with me? Repentance. Let's say that one more time. Repentance. So to conclude, here are seven key principles. I'm just going to mention them. And actually, each one of these seven key principles 
I will express them using Scripture. So seven different Scriptures that I think apply to this. There are many more. That we, we should learn from Parashat Korach, from the portion that is called Korach. Number one, you'll recognize this. It's a direct quote of Scripture. Number one, keep your heart with all diligence. How many recognize that statement? <laughs> For out of it flow the issues of life, one translation said. Number one, if we're going to learn something from Korach, keep your heart with all diligence. Somewhere along the line, Korach, Dathan, Abiram, and those 250 Anshay men of renown, something went wrong inside. Friends, tend your heart. Keep your heart with all. If you have a grudge, get rid of it. If you've got something coming, you just want to strike out and get revenge, get rid of that. Leave room for the vengeance of God. He's the one. Because he's perfect in his judgment. So number one, key principle to learn from Korach's, the power shot Korach, keep your heart with all diligence. Number two, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. How many of you have heard that verse before? Well, one reason why is because rebellion manipulates those who yield to its wishes. Rebellion begins to be the manipulator. Rather than being led by the Spirit of God, rebellion starts leading and manipulates, moves us all different directions. Let not rebelliousness be in your tent. Don't have anything to do with it. Number three, fear the Lord and depart from evil. Some passages say fear the Lord and turn from evil. They're both very uh, workable translations. Number four, Forgive and you will be forgiven. How many have heard that in Scripture? Forgive and you will be forgiven. Why do we hold on with unforgiveness, knowing that it really does damage us and actually begins to damage all those around us? Frankly, I think many of us become sick, physically sick, because we hold on to these things. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And you know, if you forgive, you are less likely to bear a grudge because you got rid of the issue. Number five, key one, very key. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, thus shall that person reap. How many of you remember that from the book of Galatians? Keep that in mind. God's not going to be mocked. Whatever a person sows, that shall they reap. Number six, taken from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And what does the next verse say in Isaiah 55, verse 7? It says this, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I have wondered what would have happened if Korach Dathan and Abiram repented. I think their life course would have been totally different. I don't think the earth would have had dinner that day. Or Oneg, <laughs> you know, it wouldn't have had that day. And lastly, principle number seven. Above all, whereas Korach and his cohorts refused to repent, we must repent. When God deals with us, repent. Turn away from the sin if he points something out to you. It's for your very good, your well-being. And Third John verse 2 says, I would that you would prosper and be in good health. So repent if God lays his hand on you and convicts you.
shows you, no, this isn't right. Repent, and if you, if you, if you can't, get it, can't get over it the first time, keep going back to the Lord. He is abundant in his mercy. And I want to leave you with this one. Principle number seven. Again, the real verse is John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Yeshua said. And please remember this. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast down. Friends, come to the Lord. Whatever issue it is, bring it to the Lord. He's not going to reject you. But it must be his terms, not yours. He's the Lord. You're not. Come to the Lord. Let's pray. Avino Sheba Shemayim, our Father in heaven, thank you that you are holy, righteous, and just in all your ways. Your judgments are true. There's no fault in you. You are blameless. We thank you for sending your holy son, Yeshua the Messiah, to die for us, to lay down his life, and also to be resurrected from the grave. The first fruits of the resurrection so that the promise of your word shall be true for those who trust in you. Whosoever believes in you shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, I pray if there's anyone hearing these words today that has just given you the stiff arm and doesn't want you close to their life, Lord, I pray in your mercy that you will break through and save them from the wrath to come and deliver them from the ways that will lead to destruction. Thank you, Lord, for this day, this Shabbat. Thank you for each person here, each person hearing these words. And above all, thank you for your grace and mercy. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pina Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat. And we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.